0: Hi, welcome to the session. In this podcast, we will continue with our routine prenatal care review, and this is part two of antepartum management. In our last session, we ended with a quick review of the nutritional demands of pregnancy with typical recommendations for caloric intake estimated at 25 to 35 kilocalories per kilo, per day, with an additional 100 to 200 kilocalories per day during pregnancy. Of course, for those with twins, an additional amount of caloric intake is recommended. Women who are pregnant with twins have a recommendation of 40 to 45 kilocalories per kilo per day. Additional iron, folate, calcium, magnesium, and zinc supplementation may also be required for patients carrying multiple gestations over routine prenatal vitamin intake. Now, in terms of dietary intake, certain foods should be used with caution. For example, listeriosis is a bacterial illness that can be particularly harmful for pregnant women, possibly resulting in miscarriage or stillbirth. To prevent listeriosis, pregnant women should avoid unpasteurized milk, soft cheeses, raw or undercooked meat, poultry, and shellfish, pate, any type, including vegetable pate, and any uncooked or undercooked ready-prepared meals. Additionally, pregnant women can reduce their risk of salmonella infection by avoiding raw or partially cooked eggs or food that may contain them, like mayonnaise, and raw or partially cooked meat, especially poultry. Women in prenatal visits often ask about the utility or benefit of omega-3 fatty acid supplementation. While observational data suggests that omega-3 fatty acid DHA supplementation has a beneficial effect on pediatric neurodevelopmental outcomes, randomized controlled trials have yielded conflicting results. At present, there is insufficient evidence to support DHA supplementation to prevent preterm birth or really aid in neurodevelopmental outcomes as long as the diet is otherwise healthy. There is also no evidence that such supplementation reduces the risk of preeclampsia or gestational diabetes mellitus. Well, what about supplemental vitamin C or vitamin E? Well, vitamin C and E supplementation during pregnancy does not prevent preeclampsia. Although some original studies had suggested that, the data did not hold true. While it may potentially have some benefit for the prevention of placental abruption and preterm premature rupture of membranes, vitamin C alone or in combination with other supplements is unproven to reduce the risk of fetal or neonatal death, poor fetal growth, preeclampsia, or preterm birth. Okay, as we wrap up this session on proper nutritional intake, patients often have questions about caffeine use. Moderate caffeine intake does not appear to have negative effects on pregnancy. However, caffeine intake in pregnancy should be limited to about 200 to 300 milligrams daily. Okay, before we get into some of the routine lab tests which are done, a quick note about air travel since patients usually ask about travel or airplane use in pregnancy. Women with uncomplicated pregnancies can fly safely until about 36 weeks gestation. That's in general. Pregnant women who are planning to fly should be informed about the increased risk of venous thromboembolism from the combination of pregnancy and venous stasis, so it's encouraged to use either pregnancy support stockings which can help maintain circulation or to ambulate frequently on a flight. They are also instructed to take appropriate precautions, again frequent trips to the restroom or up out of the chair and walk, and to move the lower extremities even if sitting in a chair for more than two hours. Alright, next we'll cover the college's stance for routine thyroid testing in pregnancy as well as carrier screening, hemoglobin electrophoresis, and other supplemental, ethnic, or race-based screening strategies in pregnancy. universal screening for subclinical hypothyroidism is controversial during pregnancy although several major societies favor routine screening in women who are pregnant or planning pregnancy acog maintains that data are insufficient to warrant routine screening and continues to recommend testing in symptomatic women and those with a personal history of thyroid disease or other medical conditions associated with thyroid disease again To date, the evidence does not support the treatment of subclinical hypothyroidism as an intervention to improve pregnancy outcomes. What about routine carrier screening? Well, that is indicated. Ideally, genetic counseling should be performed before carrier screening. ACOG recommends that all patients who are considering pregnancy or who are already pregnant be offered screening tests for cystic fibrosis, spinal muscular atrophy, and a CBC and screening test for thalassemias and hemoglobinopathies. Once again, ACOG recommends that all patients who are considering pregnancy or who are already pregnant receive screening for cystic fibrosis, spinal muscular atrophy, and a CBC and screening test for thalassemias and hemoglobinopathies. Hemoglobin electrophoresis should be performed in addition to a CBC if hemoglobinopathy is suspected based on African, Mediterranean, Middle Eastern, Southeast Asia, or West Indian ethnicity. Supplemental ethnic-based screening strategies also include Tay-Sachs disease for Ashkenazi Jews and French Canadians as well as certain Cajun descents screening panels that detect mutations associated with disorders that commonly occur in Ashkenazi Jewish populations include bloom syndrome, canavan disease, cystic fibrosis, familial dysautonomia, thalassemias anemia, and gauchers disease. Additional testing can be considered depending upon family history or in patient and physician preferences. Fragile X syndrome for women with a family history of Fragile X-related disorders or intellectual disability suggestive of Fragile X syndrome or women with a personal history of ovarian insufficiency, additional screening may be indicated based on family history or ancestry, again, for Fragile X syndrome. Same thing goes for hemochromatosis for people of Celtic ancestry, especially if a positive family history exists. Lastly, additional testing can be considered if the family history is there for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Alright, next, let's cover basics, again, basics of ultrasound. First trimester ultrasound screening is optimal for pregnancy dating. However, a complete anatomical evaluation cannot be performed at that time. When feasible, pregnant women should be provided with an opportunity for first trimester ultrasound to determine gestational age and evaluate for multiple gestation. If a size date discrepancy is present upon initial exam or menstrual dates are unknown, an ultrasound exam is indicated for accurate dating. An ultrasound performed for first trimester aneuploidy screening will also provide accurate dating information. An ultrasound examination performed between 18 and 22 weeks is optimal for a survey of the fetal anatomy and placental location. It can also confirm pregnancy dating if an earlier ultrasound was not performed. The sensitivity of ultrasound to detect fetal anomalies ranges from about 10% to about 80%, depending on the type of the anomaly, the level of risk in the population, and the expertise of the operators. Additional ultrasound examinations are not necessary unless maternal or fetal indications are present. Women should be informed on the limitations of routine ultrasound. Ultrasound in pregnancy is not associated with adverse maternal, perinatal or childhood outcomes. Long-term follow-up data from a randomized controlled trial found no significant effect of second trimester ultrasound exposure on overall school performance in teenagers. Obese patients should be informed that their fetus is at increased risk for congenital anomalies, including undiagnosed anomalies. Sonographic fetal anatomical assessment may be best performed at 20 to 22 weeks in obese patients. Routine second trimester ultrasound examinations can provide placental location and its relationship to the internal cervical os. Placenta previa, which complicates about 0.3 up to 0.5% of pregnancies, can be identified by ultrasound the majority, greater than 90%, of previous cases which are diagnosed at 20 weeks will resolve by term. So a follow-up ultrasound in the third trimester, usually around 32 weeks, is warranted as this information may help influence the type of delivery chosen. Our discussion on ultrasound is a good leeway as we get into talking about screening for chromosomal abnormalities. Aneuploidy is defined as an abnormal number of chromosomes with, of course, 46XY or 46XX representing the normal complement. There may be fewer chromosomes as in Turner syndrome, which is Monosomy X, or more chromosomes like in Down syndrome, which is Trisomy 21. Chromosomal abnormalities occur in 1 in 160 live births, with Trisomy 21. 21 and Trisomy 18 and Trisomy 13 accounting for the majority Trisomy 18 and Trisomy 13 are often incompatible with survival Although the frequency of aneuploidies increases with advanced maternal age, defined as greater than 35, they can present at any age. Most children with Down syndrome are actually born to women younger than 35 because of the frequency of pregnancies in that age range. The American College of OBGYN recommends that all women regardless of age, who present for prenatal care before 20 weeks, should be offered aneuploidy screening. Women should be counseled on the age-related risk of fetal aneuploidy, the implications of a diagnosis, and all available screening tests, including their advantages and disadvantages. In addition, all women should have the option of invasive prenatal testing, like chorionic villi sampling or amniocentesis, for a diagnosis of fetal aneuploidy. Again, all women should have the option of invasive prenatal testing if they choose to once they know the risks and benefits to assess for fetal aneuploidy. And that is the opinion of the ACOG. A variety of screening tests are available and can incorporate maternal age, ultrasound, and biochemical markers. First trimester screening can be performed from 11 to 13 weeks gestational age and includes ultrasound evaluation for nuchal translucency thickness plus maternal serum screening for pregnancy-associated plasma protein A, that's called pap and human chorionic gonadotropin. The detection rate for Down syndrome at a positive screening rate of 5% ranges from 82 to 90%. Adding evaluation of the nasal bone, which is absent in 60% to 70% of fetuses with Down syndrome, can increase the detection rate to 95%. However, there are a lot of technical standards and guidelines to guide first trimester ultrasound and biochemical marker screening. Second trimester screening includes a maternal quadruple marker screen, which is human chorionic gonadotropin, alpha fetal protein estriol and inhibin. This has a detection rate for Down syndrome of about 81%. Combining screening from both first and second degree screening tests, either the integrated or sequential screening test can improve aneuploidy detection rates. Now it's important to be aware that when maternal serum is screened for the usual clinical indicators, aneuploidy, and neural tube defect, abnormal analyte results may also identify pregnancies at risk for other adverse outcomes, like preeclampsia, and these women should be referred for appropriate follow-up in consultation with MFM when and if appropriate. Now, let's talk about non-invasive prenatal screening for trisomies. Non-invasive prenatal aneuploidy screening for trisomy 21, 18, 13, and the sex chromosomes using cell-free Fetal DNA is an option that is becoming popular, especially for those with pregnancies at risk for aneuploidy. Cell-free fetal DNA screening has high sensitivity and specificity for trisomies 18 and 21 and lower sensitivities for trisomy 13 and the sex chromosome abnormalities. Patients should be informed that cell-free fetal DNA is not a substitute for definitive chorionic villi sampling or amniocentesis. And it is limited in its ability to detect all chromosomal abnormalities and other genetic conditions. Remember, it only checks for trisomy 21, 18, 13, and if desired, the sex chromosomes and their disorders. ACOG currently discourages universal cell-free fetal DNA screening and instead still recommends conventional screening among the general low-risk population. The general screening methods are again isolated first trimester screens, isolated second trimester, or the combined first and second trimester algorithms. Now, the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, SMFM, considers appropriate potential candidates for routine cell-free fetal DNA screening to include maternal age of 35 years or older, fetal ultrasound findings that include an increased risk of aneuploidy, history of a previous pregnancy with a trisomy detected by fetal DNA screening, positive screen results for aneuploidy using another screening modality and paternal balanced Robertsonian location with an increased risk of fetal trisomy 13 or 21. Cell-free fetal DNA may be offered to appropriately counsel patients regardless of risk status. Women who undergo cell-free fetal DNA screening should undergo maternal serum alpha-fetal protein screening as well, or fetal anatomical ultrasound for assessment of neural tube defects and ventral wall defects. Once again, it's important to remember that this is a screening test and not a diagnostic test. Negative results cannot entirely exclude the possibility of aneuploidy and positive results cannot be confirmed without invasive testing. Using ultrasound as a second trimester tool also can be used to detect fetal anatomical markers associated with aneuploidy, and that can modify a pregnancy's risk of carrying an affected fetus. Examples of ultrasonographic markers for aneuploidy include an echogenic intracardiac focus, an absent nasal bone, short humerus or femur, an echogenic bowel, two-vessel umbilical cord, and a sandal gap toe deformity. Whichever screening test is used, the patient should be advised that screening provides an individual risk assessment, but it is not diagnostic. Definitive genetic diagnosis requires an invasive genetic test like chorionic valley sampling if it's early or amniocentesis. Patients who desire definitive genetic information regarding their pregnancies should be counseled to consider invasive genetic tests. Okay, next, let's cover screening for neural tube defects. there are two approaches for neural tube defect screening maternal serum alpha fetal protein in the second trimester between 15 and 22 weeks but it's optimal at 16 to 18 weeks and ultrasound maternal serum alpha fetal protein has historically been used as a screening test the standard screening cutoff is 2.5 multiples of the median and that detects about 80 percent of open spina bifida and 90% of cases of anencephaly. If women screen positive, a detailed ultrasound is performed. This is done to ensure that the pregnancy is viable and accurately dated. It's also done to evaluate for the presence of multiple gestations, which can throw off an alpha-fetal protein serum test. And it's lastly done, of course, to assess for fetal anatomy, for fetal tube defect, and other defects associated with elevated AFP, like an omphalocele, gastroschisis, or a cystic hygroma. Amniocentesis can be performed to determine if amniotic fluid, AFP, is elevated and acetylcholinesterase is present. These are considered diagnostic of a neural tube defect. Our last session for this podcast, which again is part two, will be screening for gestational diabetes. The rest will be covered in part three. The American College of OBGYN recommends and supports universal screening of all pregnant women with a 24 to 28 week screening test for diabetes. Among women considered to be at high risk for the condition, early screening and testing can be performed. And if normal then, then a repeat screen is still recommended at 24 to 28 weeks a two-step lab screen is supported by ACOG. ACOG does not recommend a one-step approach due to concerns that this practice would increase the incidence of a diagnosis of gestational diabetes and resulting health care costs without evidence to support an improvement in maternal or newborn outcome. Historical risk factors that can identify women who need early screening include those with first prenatal visit or early glucosuria, those with a BMI greater than 30, in other words, those who are obese, those who have a previous macrosomic child, again, that's greater than 4 kilos, a previous pregnancy having gestational diabetes, family history of diabetes in a first degree relative, or those who are a minority ethnic group with a high incidence of diabetes. All right, that wraps up our part two of our three-part series on routine prenatal postpartum care. We've covered late first trimester and have now covered second trimester screening up to glucose tolerance testing for gestational diabetes. We'll see you for part three.